this evening's scripture is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And it can be found on page number 555 in the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill is work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, everybody. So uh, we're in a, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're new tonight, we're kind of just making our way through the book um, verse at a time. And last week we ended at the end of chapter 3. And today we're going to pick up chapter 4, verse 1, get through uh, uh, verse 6. Let me just catch you up real quickly. Solomon has set out on this grand experiment in this book. Solomon was a king in Israel. His father was David. Uh, in his young life, most likely, he wrote the book of uh, the Song of Solomon. In his middle life, kind of when he was doing very well, he wrote about 3,000 Proverbs. He wrote a lot of the Proverbs, the Psalms that we have. And then in his later life, he looks back, and, uh, and we, have, we have the book of Ecclesiastes. He's, he's done some stupid things. He looks back and says, I want to tell you what I've learned. But he's on this experiment in the book of Ecclesiastes to try and find meaning under the sun. And that is, you know, apart from God. That is, we, we've been using the analogy of a loom. And, and looking under the loom, you see just the threads. You come above and you see the tapestry and you see the beauty of it. But we live under the loom. And so Solomon has gone, I'm going to try to trace any of these threads. I'm going to try to find meaning in anything I can eat, uh, anything I can drink, anything I can buy, anything I can laugh about, anything I can sleep with. I'm going to see if any of those lead me to the place of meaning. And he keeps coming up empty. And he finds there is no meaning. He just can't uh, uh, come to that place because he needs something else. The only thing that's going to let him see what's going on above the loom, the tapestry that God is weaving, is the eyes of faith. What a friend of mine calls the Christian's sixth sense, okay, this eyes of faith. And that's a gift from God. Now, what Solomon, one of the things as he's going through this, one of the things he observes is that he, he, he looks and says, look, God is in control of everything. That's chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And, and, and this is one of the most awesome, amazing, mind-blowing truths of Scripture is that God is in control. There is nothing that happens in this world that is outside of God's control, including typhoons. Now, that doesn't mean that we're robots. We make real decisions every single day. You say, how do those things work together? I have no idea. 
But God, the Bible says, though I make those decisions, God is, he stays in control and he bends everything to his sovereign goodwill. And according to Solomon in chapter 3, verse 11, he makes everything, all of these random things, he makes them beautiful in their time. Now, the problem with the sovereignty of God, and we've, we're, we're on our last week of talking about this, but the problem is that if you stop and think about it, you go, wait a second. If God is ultimately in control of everything, then why is there evil? in the world, right? This is one of the big objections to Christianity. You guys are just so naive, right? Why are there natural disasters? Why did a typhoon strike the Philippines and just devastate that place? See, see, people look at typhoons and they look at devastation and they go, see, well, look it. Here's how it is. If God is God, as you say he is, Christians, then he must not be good, But if God is good, he must not be the God you think he is. You can't have it both ways, Christian. Or let's say it another way. If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil in the world. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, this traditional good and powerful God that you believe in, Christian, cannot possibly exist. Some other God, perhaps, but not your traditional God. Now, whenever we claim to believe in a sovereign God, there's always a yeah, but that follows, right? What about? What about typhoons? What, what about earthquakes? What about murders? What about? It's not new. Solomon, Solomon, right, he, he's already told us that there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that's been's already, you know, already happened. Everything is, everything's happening's already been, whatever. It's not new. Solomon said this. Man hasn't come up yet with a new argument against God. We, we think we have, we haven't. Our arguments against God are as old as humanity. And, and, and it was these yeah buts to the absolute sovereignty of God and his control that leads Solomon to write chapter 3, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 6. So we dealt with this a little bit last week. And what he does, he raises objections. He says, well, yeah, but what about? He looks around, he sees injustice and suffering and wickedness and oppression and envy and all these things. He says, man, how in the world is God in control of all of this? So last week, we looked at chapter 3, verse 16, verses 20 to, to verse 22, and, and we, we talked about the first objection in all this. And what did we say? We said, the first objection is, if God is in control, why is there so much injustice in the world? And we watched his argument where he said, basically, he said this, because God's the judge, you're not. God is the ultimate judge, and God is proving he's going to do that, and he's also showing us that through that injustice, how animal-like we are. We're beasts. We're, we respond to our instincts. We go with our gut. We, 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 we attack. We run in packs. We kill. We destroy, and God's showing us something about ourselves and something about him. Now, we get now to the last two objections, and we'll finish with them this week, okay? So the second objection, this we're going to start with, with today, is if God is in control, why is there so much oppression in the world? Okay, so we're going to start reading and just kind of do this one verse at a time, okay? So pick it up, and let's look at verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Okay, so here's what he's saying. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 16, he looks and he sees the places where there should be justice, there's injustice. The places where there 
should be righteousness, there's, there's wickedness. So, so now he looks and says, he's not looking at places, now he's looking at people. And he's saying there's these people in the world that are actually running things and they have become oppressive. The very people who are supposed to make your life better through their benevolent and good leadership have taken advantage of their power and brought oppression, right? People get power and it ruins them, right? We have that saying, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? See, see God, now, now, you have to understand this, God has ordained power structures in our world. Okay, you don't have to go very far to look at it. God sets up rulers and tears them down and God decides when nations are gonna happen. He says, you know, this is gonna be the president and that's gonna be the prime minister and I'm putting these people in. It doesn't mean God approves of them. It doesn't mean it doesn't at all. It just means I'm gonna set up who I want to to accomplish my will. And in Romans 13, right, Paul tells us that, that God has given us rulers. I mean, he put them in place and we may not like it, and he says that, 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 that these, these rulers ordained by God are not to be a terror. They're not for our terror. They're for our good, Paul says in Romans chapter 13. They're, they're, they're not a terror to good conduct. They're a terror to bad conduct. But Paul, even as he writes that, is living under the terror, if you will, of a Roman Caesar who's horrible to Christians. Okay, because Paul looks and goes, look, in this broken, sinful world, people can't handle power. They're not supposed to act like that, but they do. And, and listen, lest we think this has nothing to do with us, this is not just about presidents and senators and kings and emperors. This is, this is about anyone in a position of authority who can determine whether you have a good or a bad life. All right, this can be a teacher. This can be a pastor. This can be a city council member. God has put people in authority and that authority is supposed to be used to help us and not hurt us. But so often people with power abuse it, don't they? They, 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 the, the people with power that's supposed to be used to help us isn't used to help us. It's used to hurt us, right? So, so they, they don't use it for our good. They use it for their own benefit. God put them into a position of leadership and authority, and they abuse the gift that God has given them and, and, and the position that God has put them in. And this happens all the time, doesn't it? Like when people live apart from God, when God is not in their lives, when God is not calling the shots, they live without a fear of God, a worship, an awe of Him, then they become their own little gods. You're going to have a, there's going to be some God in your life. And, and they use their power to benefit themselves even at the cost of oppressing the very people they were charged to lovingly lead. Now, we, ha we can let our minds run wild. He must be talking about Joseph Coney. Okay, yeah, terrible, awful, oppressive ruler. But I think this strikes way, way, way closer to home than many of us would like to admit. Like after God, think with me for a moment. Who is the one person of authority in your life that is supposed to be the most helpful, loving, kind gracious, providing person in your life? Who, who's the human being that is supposed to use authority to help you and not hurt you? It's your dad. 
It's your dad. I mean, God gave him authority over you by putting you in his family. And there are some of you in this room today who would say, my dad did not use that authority to encourage and equip and launch me into life. My dad used it to abuse me and rule over me like a dictator over a small nation. And I am still, there are, there are grown people in this room. There are, there are old people in this room that still carry the wound of a father. Happens all the time. See, for some of you, your most painful memory of oppression, your deepest wounds come from a man that you were supposed to call dad. The man who was supposed to use his authority to show you love and kindness and grace and provision and protection, used it to hurt, harm, rule over and oppress you. I mean, how many wives live under the oppressive, controlling, angry, abusive rule of a man who she pledged to love, who said, yeah, I'll provide for you, I'll protect you in sickness and in health, I'll be there for you. Listen, and let me just say this as an aside. If you have a spouse, if you have a father, if you have a pastor, if you have an employer, if you have anybody in your life that is an authority over you that has been kind and has used that authority to bless you and help you and encourage you and equip you, you ought to go home today if you're a woman to that man and kiss him on the mouth and say thank you. And to that man to that woman and kiss her on the mouth. Don't do that to your boss. But you know what I'm saying? Go and tell them thank you for not using your power to oppress me. Because it happens all the time. Because we live in a culture where power has been so abused and so often And in such personally hurtful ways that we hate authority in America. We just hate it. Don't you set yourself up over me. We have a disdain for power. We rebel against it. We push back, right? We rebel against parents and teachers and pastors and coaches and government because we have so few examples of humble, servant, godly, precious, loving leaders who by God's grace use their power and authority for our good and not for their own benefit. And so what do we do, man? In America, we opt for anarchy, right? We We could hang a sign over America that that shows up three times in the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel in those days. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. So Solomon looks around and he just sees oppression everywhere. He sees it in government. He sees it in clergy. He sees it in homes. He sees it in moms and dads. He sees it in spouses. And what's the result? Tears just weeping and no one to dry them and no one to comfort them, just despair. This is what it feels like, right? Does anyone care what I'm going through? Does anyone even know? How how come no one's coming to rescue me? Does God even know? This is heartbreaking. So so this is what happens. Look at verse 2 of of chapter 4. He says, and I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Verse 3, but better than both is he who has not yet been, not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done in the sun. I mean, you hear what Solomon is saying? This is so awful and there's so much crying and so much lack of comfort that this person who's been abused and oppressed and all this, he'd be better off, she'd be better off dead, maybe better off non-existent. Let's 
Step back for a second. Have you ever talked like this, first of all? I wish I was dead. I wish I'd never been born. Solomon right now is just being really, let's say, authentic, okay? Like just raw. I'm just telling you, I'm processing out loud, right? I'm not offering you answers at this point. I'm just pointing out what I'm thinking. And he's just processing, right? He thinks a lot. And he's looking at these seemingly random threads of oppression. I don't get this. How in the world does this fit into your sovereignty, God? This is better off just dead, right? It would be better if I were non-existence than to live in a world like I do where there's so much oppression and so much heartache. Now, is that what God thinks. See, see let, me, let me say something to you about your Bible. And now be careful. Do, I mean, you could really misquote me here. Just because it's in the Bible, just because it crosses someone's lips in the Bible doesn't mean God agrees with it. Okay, you've got to know this. <laughs> There are times when people say things in Scripture that are just stupid. There are times that they say things that God absolutely disagrees with. Even people who are supposed to be heroes in Scripture, like Abraham. I mean, if you remember the story, he says to Sarah, hey, uh, there's this king and he's powerful. So how about you and I pretend we're brother and sisters? Gross, but right? And the king sees them kind of noodling down there and like, okay, that's, that's creepy, that's not a brother and sister, and realizes they're lying. God did not approve of that. How about all the words that came out of Job's friends' mouths, and God at the very end, just read Job. I mean, the majority of Job is his friends saying, the reason you're being punished is because you did something wrong. In all these various ways, you, you think you're smart, Job, you're not. You think you're godly, you're not. Nobody has happened to them, Job, what happens to them with, unless they've sinned. And then God comes on the scene and says, everything you guys said, wrong. Happens all the time. We have to be careful that we don't read something and think, oh, God thinks it's better if I'm dead. God thinks it's better if I had never been born. See, see Jesus comes along and says, I came to give you life. And life what? Abundantly. Right there. Now listen, he's saying, I want you to really live, not I came so that like Solomon, you'd wish you were dead. You'd wish you were non-existent. But if all you do is see the threat of oppression, if all you do is live under the loom, under the sun, apart from God, then it's all meaningless. That's why God sends Jesus from beyond the sun. And he comes into our world. He enters. He becomes one of us. He shows us how to live. He says, let me take you above the sun. Let me show you what God is doing. And Jesus suffers from the most unjust, oppressive sin ever committed on the face of the earth, and he dies from it. And he tells us, hey guys, hey gals, don't worry about it. In this world, you'll have tribulation. Watch me. I'm going to go through it, but be of good cheer. Take heart. I've overcome the world. See, see that's Jesus' way of lifting us above the loom and giving us new eyes, a hope that there is life beyond the sun, that oppression will finally give way to the glorious rule of Christ. So when we see, now hear me, when we see pointless evil, remember our beginning? 
we know that God must not be good because we see so much pointless evil or he must not be God. I mean, you can't have it both ways. You can't have this traditional God. When we see pointless evil, when we see unjustifiable oppression in our world, when we see the Joseph Conies and all that, Okay, just because it's pointless to us, just because it seems unjustifiable to my small, puny, five-pound brain doesn't mean it's pointless. Do you hear me? This is so crucial. Okay, okay, the fact that you can't see, that I can't see a good reason why God would allow seemingly meaningless evil and oppression doesn't mean there's no good reason. That's not an approval of Joseph Coney. That's not an approval of you being abused by your husband. That's not an approval of fathers who are, who are being oppressive to their children. Not at all. I'm saying that seems meaningless to us. And God in his extraordinary, infinite sovereignty says, look, I'm doing something here. And I'm going to make everything beautiful in its time. It may just mean that what we can't do, we see the threat of oppression and it seems random and we don't know where it's going. But it may just mean we can't, we can't peer over the loom to see what God is up to because he's up to something. So that's the second objection. Objection number three is this. If God is in control, why are people so envious and lazy? Now let me explain this. Look at, look at verse four. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Okay, now, what, what Solomon is going to do now is sort of the opposite. So he's done oppression from on top, if you will. Now he's going to go ahead and take envy from the bottom. And that is that oppression is really the powerful kicking the powerless. Envy, laziness, is those with no power looking up and, and kind of hating those who are doing well in life. See, see, Solomon looks at oppressors and goes, God, if you're in control, why won't you or can't you Control the oppressive urges of these oppressors, these rulers that cause so much pain and agony in our world. And he's asking a similar question here. God, if you're sovereign, why won't you, why can't you control the envy and laziness that infect and hurt so much of our world? That keep our world from becoming what it should be. Look, because as Solomon looks at these two, this envy and laziness... He sees them as powerful, powerful forces for evil. Now, let, let, me, let me try to help us feel this. When you can't look at the blessing on someone else that God has done and thank God for it, your heart will probably go in one of two directions. It'll probably turn to envy or it'll turn to laziness. I'm going to explain this, Okay. You will either work your fingers to the bone trying to get what someone else has that you don't, or you'll fold your hands and go, whatever, who cares? I'm laying on my couch, eating a bag of potato chips, and hoping I'll win the lottery. Right? Envy or laziness. So, so let's look at what he says. Look at, look at verse uh, 4 again with me. Then I saw that all the toil and skill and work from a man's envy of his neighbor... Uh, come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So Solomon says, look at one of the primary drive shafts, one of the primary motivators of the human heart apart from God is envy. 
Okay, envy, right? Envy of your neighbor, he says, is what makes you work hard and strive and toil and all these things to, to, to get what that neighbor has. I want it, so I want to be better than him. I want to show up at my 25th class reunion, and I want to be able to say, look how awesome I am. And I know there's another guy who's ahead of me, and I want to say I'm awesomer, right? I mean, look, at so, so you all heard of the seven deadly sins, right? And lust and greed and all these things. One, one, of them is, one of them is envy. In fact, the early church saw envy as being the second only to pride. And that's because few sins, now think about this, few sins would exist without envy. Where would adultery be without envy? Where would gluttony be without envy? Right? Think of, like, like, Envy is stored up in human hearts, and your heart is what you live out of, right? So the desires of, of your heart are what lead you to sin. Sin is not just some outside force that I couldn't help it, the devil made me do it. No, it's coming from inside. Each man is led away by his own desires. Envy is a form of covetousness. With envy, your success doesn't make me happy. I don't look at you and go, yay, I'm so happy for you. It makes me cry and say, I want what you have and I hate you for it. I remember when I was a kid, we, we were watching The Price is Right one day. Right? Got to the showcase showdown. And, and um, you know, I forget. They want a car and a boat and, you know, whatever, all this stuff. And I just remember being like, oh, and my mom's listening to this. I'm like, man, that's, that's not fair. Good, you know, I should, we should, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just being envious. My mom's like, Chris, come on. You know, God wants you to rejoice in that. He wants you to be happy for those people. Whatever. <laughs> right? That's how our heart works, though. See? And you, and you hear, this is, this is what Solomon is saying. With envy... It's not that I want to do well or learn a skill or get better at my job because I look and say, you know what? Thank you, Jesus. And I want to glorify you. Rather, I do all those things. I want to get better. I want to be better than you are. I do all those things because I want to have what you have. I, 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 I mean, how much of our economy is based on tapping in to the heart of envy. We build multi-billion dollar complexes around the United States to tease envy inside of people. Entertainment complexes, shopping malls. What is a shopping mall? A giant billboard for envy. I just walk through, I want everything. I don't have that. You have a lot of bags that you're walking around with. I want what you've got. I want more than you have. See, and the frightening thing about envy is that like oppression, right? See, see oppression only happens to those who have power and can exercise that. The problem with envy is it's bottled up in every single human heart, right? It's in my heart. It's in your heart, and it drives so much of what we do. And one of the worst parts about it is that we're most likely to feel envious of who? People most like us. 
The people that I could learn the most from are the people I envy the most. Like, like look, I, I, don't, I don't feel envy. I'm looking at Kevin Shakarian. He makes awesome cabinetry. I don't envy Kevin. I can't use a hammer. Okay, I literally, my toolbox is a wrench, two screwdrivers, and an old hammer that I'm not sure I've ever used. Okay, so I have no jealousy for Kevin. Al Marsala, he's a teacher, okay? He's a grade school teacher. I have no envy for anybody that teaches grade schools. But like, like <laughs> so I look around the room, and I, I'm not jealous of you. But put me in a room filled with pastors who are kind of going through what I'm through, and suddenly, holy cow, here it comes. Right? Uh, see, see, this is... This is the way it works, right? Os Guinness, the philosopher, and he says this, we are always most vulnerable to envying those closest to our gifts and callings. Musicians generally envy musicians, not politicians. Politicians, other politicians. Sports people, other sports people. Professors, other professors. Pastors, other pastors. How about you? It's there, isn't it? You're a liar if you say, I don't envy anybody. See, some of you have had relationships ruined because of envy. You got something that someone else wanted, and so they can't be friends with you, or or they got something that you wanted, like a marriage, like a child, like a, a level of success or education, like some material possession that you wanted, or maybe you have a better husband or wife, or they have a better behaved child or a better car than, than you do, right? And, and, and the friendship starts to die because when they come rejoicing over what God has done for them, you don't rejoice with them. You feel angry. You feel mad. You're mad at God. You run away from the friendship. And what that proves is that well, you're, not, you're not after doing what you do. You're not motivated out of love for God, but out of love for yourself in competition with our neighbors. This is exactly what Solomon sees. Now, let's keep going. Look at, look at verse 5. He says, the fool holds, uh, folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Okay, so there's envy, but now there's laziness. Okay, the guy or gal who does nothing, the way you fight covetousness and envy is to just give up rather than giving in, right? So what you'll do, like if you just don't care, then maybe it won't matter and it'll go away. If you can just convince yourself that you don't want any of the stuff that everybody else has, if you can feel apathetic toward it, then at least you won't feel bad for not having what somebody else has. So in some ways, you start thinking of yourself as above people because you don't need all that they're striving for. I mean, you're not going after the big luxurious things of of, of their life. I mean, that kind of lux just ain't for us, we crave a different kind of buzz, right? I don't want any of that stuff. So rather than being killed by the rat race of the working world, what do you do? You opt out. I just won't go for it. You fold your hands. And Solomon says people like that are, are fools, Proverbs 6, verses 9 through 11. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a robber and want 
like an armed man. There's all kinds of passages in Scripture in the Proverbs and wisdom literature about lazy sluggards, right? And, and here in Ecclesiastes, go back there, Solomon says this guy, he folds his hand and he eats his own flesh. Well, there's nothing else to eat, right? Because he's lazy. You consume your life. You cannibalize yourself. You eat up your savings because you won't work hard. You eat up your potential because you don't want to work hard. You eat up the skills God has given you. And Solomon says, you're a fool. A fool does that. To squander away the potential that God has given you. So here, I want you to see there's two extremes now. There's enviousness that that takes you and you run and you go crazy trying to achieve what everybody else has. There's laziness that says, no, I don't want any of it. I'll just divorce myself from it and I'll sit and fold my hands and my life will just be consumed by me. And and look at at how Solomon solves the problem in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So Solomon says, look, okay, here's what I'm trying to do. Don't, don't, don't kill yourself trying to keep up with the Joneses. And don't give up by dropping out of the workforce and eating up your life, being a lazy bum. He says, here's what he says, no, work. Okay, it's better to have one handful and enjoy it with peace, quietness, like I'm enjoying what God has given me than to have more than you can use and not have any rest. I just, my envy just drives my heart and I can't do anything. So, so, the, so the guy who's lazy, he's not doing this. The guy who's envious, he's not doing this. Now think of the imagery here, okay? One handful leaves you another hand to work with and enjoy, Right, so I can enjoy life because I've got a free hand, if you will. Two hands is I'm just trying to dump, dump, dump and keep holding. And I've got, I can't use my hands now to enjoy the life that God has given me. So, so it's good to work and it's good to be diligent, but you do it in a way that at the end of the day, you have a free hand to enjoy your family. You still have time for your friends. You still have time for your church. You still have time to take a nap. Right? You still have time to enjoy your Sabbath, to go to dinner, to enjoy a day off, to coach your kids' little league. That's, that's one-handedness. Or, or you could work hard and try to fill up your hands and then not have times for any of those things, right? So, so no time for your wife because I'm still trying to accumulate, right? No time for my family, no time for little league, no time for an evening out. I'm too busy. I'm trying to make it big. I'm trying to fill up my hands. That's the image. So you see the choices. Will you fold your hands, opt out, and be lazy, right? I'm not, I don't want anything. Or will you cup your hands and become a workaholic? Or will you make a wise choice and be content? Say, God, what do you want to put in my hand? And then I want to be content to say thank you for that and then enjoy my life, the rest of my life that still is unencumbered. See, see America is filled with workaholic, cup-handed people who, who are willing to do, they just want more, willing to do almost anything. They will sacrifice their lives for it. I mean, I have read so many statistics the last few weeks. We are a nation of workaholics. 
I mean, it's a disease. We, we, we think it's noble. We think it's some sort of this Protestant work ethic, that that's somehow a good thing. It's noble to work on your days off. It's noble not to take the vacation you've earned. Why are you doing that? Because I've got this idol I'm trying to serve. It's either accumulating or I've got somebody's opinion that matters to me. I mean, there are some companies that reward people for saying, way to go, you didn't take all your vacation. There are some companies who will congratulate you when you miss your son's Little League game because you're such a dedicated manager. That's sick. Luke 12, I don't know if you remember the parable. Jesus tells that parable where he says there was this man, he was rich and and uh, he had just gained, I mean, everybody in the community knew him, and, and he was, had a wonderful year of harvest, and he says, man, I've got more than I know what to do with. I've got all this excess. I tell you what I'll do. I'm going to build myself more barns for me and my stuff. And Jesus says, you fool, don't you know that tonight your very life will be required of you? Jesus doesn't say people that act like this and accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. He doesn't say, hey, way to go. You're awesome. He says, you're an idiot. And he says, at the end of the parable, Jesus says, so it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. Listen, okay, so, so all right. Oppressors want to store up treasures for themselves. Envious people work hard to store up treasures for themselves. Lazy people think that the way out is to avoid those sins and just go, you know, I don't care. But they're still focused on themselves. None of them are focused on the God who controls everything. So there's envy and there's oppression and there's laziness. And maybe you'd go, man... Chris, I'm in that mix. I know I am. So what's the remedy? Well, I, I think there's a couple things. I think it's, it's thinking less about ourselves and more about Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. According to John 13, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God and He rose from supper takes off his outer garments, and he washes his disciples' feet. That is authority without oppression. That is slavery looking up, and I don't envy you. That is love without laziness. And I think the other part of that is remembering the grace of God in your life. You know what makes you, you and I chase things? You know what makes me lazy or what makes me envious or what makes me oppressive? I'm not serving God. And if I'm not serving God, I'm serving an idol. There's something, there, there's something in my life that I am bowing down to worship. There's something in my life that is giving me my sense of self-worth. There's something that I'm serving and saying, you know, if you'll, if you'll do this, then you'll be saved, Chris. That's a false Messiah. That's an idol. And the way we get around that is we go, I got to remember the grace of God in my life. God's grace-hearted approval of me in Jesus is what frees me from being defined by the blessings and opportunities that he's given you. So I don't look at other pastors and go, I'm envious because your church is bigger than mine. You have a larger staff. You have more money to work with. I don't have to look like that. 
I'm freed from that petty enslavement to feeling envy or using then therefore, you know what? I'm going to get my way and I'll oppress people to have the biggest church in town. I'll oppress people so that my kids, I'll oppress my children so that everybody go, wow, your kids are awesome. They're certainly well behaved. I mean, all kinds of ways. I'll, 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 the, the envy will drive me mad or I'll look and I'll say, you know what? I belong to Jesus. And I get my identity from Jesus. And Jesus has saved me. And Jesus has been gracious with me. And, 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 and he's freed me from all that. And so now, God, I can be happy in other people's successes. I can be happy for what God's doing in you versus what he's doing in me because, because ultimately I'm happy in God. And if I'm happy in God, I'm contented in God. And if I'm contented in God, then I'm not going to be envious. And I have no need to oppress people. See what Solomon is doing? He says, man, this is what happens. This is what happens to the human heart when it's allowed to go free like that. It ends up in, in oppression and envy and laziness. And the answer is Jesus, the one who washed our feet the one who gave us authority without oppression, the one who gave us slavery without envy and love without laziness. Let's pray.